0: This is Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests about their reading and writing practices. For today's episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Keely Tompkins, who is an associate professor at Pomona College and is jointly appointed to the Department of English and the program in Junior Women's Studies, where she previously completed a decade-long stint as a chair of the program. Her research work investigates aesthetic production, biopolitics, and the history of ideas through an interdisciplinary methodology grounded in close reading practices. We talk about her book, Racial Indigestion, Eating Bodies in the 19th Century, where she explores the body as a political site and eating as a form of technology. We are both scholars who interrogate what Kila considers as the matter we call food. Can you tell me about your background as a restaurant critic? How long did you work as a restaurant critic, and what did you focus on when you were critiquing restaurants?
1: So being an academic is like really about my fourth career. I was a professional dancer and I did a lot of political work. I worked in women's shelters and I did a lot of anti-domestic violence work and pro-choice political work, anti-racist work in Toronto. And then I went back to school after dropping out of everything. I started my BA actually when I was 24 and, uh, Kind of created for myself an internship at a newspaper uh, the summer after my first year going back to undergrad. And I knew, I knew that my family's been interested in food for a long time. I think because we're, like many of us, we're immigrants. And as immigrants, especially from a former French colony, the most portable thing that you have to carry with you is your food culture. You leave behind everything, but your food culture is something that you carry with you. So I had been sort of attentive to the the politics and cultural importance of food for a very long time. I knew that I wanted to write. And so that when I started again as a journalist, I came to it as like an intern at a newspaper and then started building a, a freelance writing career. I came to it with a lot of food knowledge. You know, first, Uh, because I had just been noticing and watching and reading about food for a long time. Um, Second, because I was very attentive to how my family used food to come together with each other, and also to kind of demarcate ourselves from other Canadians who were not immigrants, who we thought had just incredibly um, bad taste which is not really fair, but that's something we told ourselves. I don't think it's true, but it's something that we told ourselves, right? And because it's really not true because there's also like great indigenous Canadian food and French Canadian food and other stuff. And then third, you know, when the whole foodie movement happened in North America, which is in the 70s, when I was a very little girl, my family came from a French colony. So we had a lot of French food knowledge already. And a lot of family in France. And so food knowledge and the kind of food knowledge that in the West has come to be portrayed as foodie knowledge or that very particular kind of performance of food information that is also like a class performance, which we, you know, we can keep talking about. I already had that. So there I was as an intern and the food writing just sort of started being given to me. And I was interested in it. I started a with food uh, at a newspaper called Extra Magazine, which was Canada's gay and lesbian newspaper. Wait, you lived in Canada for a while, right? Montreal. Yeah. 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 So I wrote from, I wrote for Extra Magazine, which was then based only in Toronto and Vancouver. And um, it was pretty low budge. I mean, I think to be a really ethical food writer, you need to visit restaurants two and three times. Uh, You need to sample a whole bunch of stuff. Um, You need to have the budget to do that. And I didn't have that at all. So I ended up concentrating on the food that I really love in the world, which is not pretentious food. In fact, I really loathe a pretentious food experience, which is actually like mom and pop right off the street, student food. Um, And I ended up doing a lot of writing about really cheap food. Like I think actually even before Jonathan Gold was doing what he did in the San Gabriel Valley, I grew up in Chinatown in Toronto. And so was pretty used to living on like, um, you know, duck noodle soup for like two 99. So that's the kind of food writing I did was sort of mom and pop stuff, really cheap stuff. Um, I was the first person in Toronto to ever review a Jamaican restaurant even though, like, Jamaican food is literally one of the best things
0: about Toronto, period. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Was it extra, you said? Is it still in circulation? And does this yeah. it next? so So that's really great. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's Canada's Game Lesbian newspaper now.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it, it, it changed its name or? X-T-R-A. You know X-T-R-A. what? I haven't lived in
1: Canada for over 20 years now,
0: so oh. everything I say needs to be fact-checked. I was just really yeah. interested to see um, <laughs> if the trajectory changed or not, but I'll look it up. Yeah. How, how did your experience as a restaurant critic influence your academic trajectory in the mm-hmm. interdisciplinary field of food studies?
1: Sure. Like I said, I went back to undergrad at 24 and I was applying for graduate schools. I was very interested in critical theory. I was inter- majoring in English at a moment of kind of like the efflorescence of critical theory um, and kind of minoring in women's studies and had been very active in feminist and, and gay lesbian movements. And I was doing a lot of, like I said, sort of like boots on the ground level political work. And when I applied to graduate schools, I applied to Columbia Journalism School and I applied to a bunch of Ph.D. programs and I got into Stanford for a Ph.D. and I got into Columbia J. School. I might have been able to make it work, but we just we're an immigrant family. We don't have that kind of money, especially coming from Canada. with a weaker dollar. But for me, it was really a question of um, what are the size of the questions that I get to ask about culture. I knew that I wanted to write about food, although my graduate proposal was about modernism and North Africa. And then it had a PS, it had like a postscript PS. I'm going to, I think I might also write about food (laughs) and um, the choice about going on to graduate school or going on to be a journalist, the kind of writing that you're able to do about food is very limited. And I was just scared that I would be stuck in the women's pages for the rest of my life. Um, And not that there's anything wrong with the women's pages. I read them first personally. And I always have the style sections where I go first um, alongside the food section, but I just wanted to ask big questions. I didn't want to ask small questions. And it didn't seem to me that I could write about food and be a journalist and ask big questions. It would be like be a journalist and ask big questions and food is a side gig. Or go on to graduate school and be able to work on sort of some some big questions and big research projects and maybe also write about food and so I just decided that I would go on to do a dissertation.
0: So I read racial int- uh, indigestion and in your introduction. I really like how you weaved your poignant observations on the cultural, literary, prescriptive, visual, and dietetic texts on racialized eating consumption. And mm-hmm. you said something very interesting in that you said that you didn't want to focus on food, but eating as a technology. Yeah. And then when you're saying if you went to J school or continue your career as a journalist, you couldn't ask the big questions. What What do you mean by that? Can you clarify what you mean by the big questions in journalism that may, may not... That's- something that you couldn't ask and compared to what you could ask in an academic text?
1: You know, when I was in graduate school, food studies had was a little seedling in the ground. And there was like the Chronicle of Higher Education, which was then I think only in print form, not even mm-hmm. on the web, but they had this story like, oh my God, you guys, guess what? There's these like crazy academics, and like, oh my God, they're like writing about food and whoa. And then there was like all these quotes from like, you know, people who, to whom I'm very indebted as all the, as foundational work that they did, like Alice Julia and Bentley and Ron Belasco and all the and other you know, figures, like Jeporson. Yeah, uh, um, and a lot of the kind of early discourse in food studies was you know, food is really great to study academically because food is a universal, yeah, food is a thing that brings people together. And there was a lot of the you know, a little bit of what I could see when I talked about my own thinking about myself as a child of immigrants, um, which is like food is culture and food is how communities come together and we represent. Blah, blah, blah. And it was a very kind of valedictory story. But for me, mm-hmm. um, especially coming back to the political work that I had done in domestic violence shelters, I remember, like, I never thought of the kitchen as this, like, marvelous place of female empowerment. Like, and we like very much this kind of early con- second wave feminist historiography around food of, like, you know, these amazing women who, like, who created lives from their interest in food, and, you know, who empowered themselves through domestic science, And, you know, that kind of, like, recuperative, wave feminist work. But for me, working in women's shelter, what I saw was that the kitchen was, like, where the worst fights happened, mm-hmm. which was the dirtiest labor was. Um, it was where, in fact, the most vexed interracial, interethnic conflicts took place. I was really interested in my awareness of the history of the kitchen is actually a place of backbreaking, brutal labor, Mm -hmm. bloodiness and unkindness uh, and conflict as held against this sort of story of, you know, recuperative Mm -hmm. feminist empowerment. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see like, where's the difficult stuff that takes place around food culture? But same with food studies, people buy food history books. It's fun to read about food. And it seemed to me that that was a good thing and a limitation because it kept us fixated on the happy stories,
0: yeah.
1: not it kept us from looking at the difficult things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for my first book, I was very much interested in saying, let's, Let's refuse the pleasure of looking at the object, or let's complicate the object. And almost in a sense, let's take a photo negative of the scene of food studies. So, like the, the photograph of food studies is everybody around a table, right? And then the photo negative that I wanted to take was of everything happening around the food object, which was to say mm-hmm. the labor, the production, uh, the inequalities, the work, the bodies, mm-hmm. the sweat, the remunerated labor. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of um, uh, the stories we tell each other mm-hmm. or we tell ourselves about the things that we eat, and so that was really not that other people were not also doing that work. I, I'm not trying to make myself the hero of yeah. the story of food studies, right? Everybody was doing some of that work. Yeah, um, but I just wanted to complicate what we were doing.
0: Maybe the entrance of what counts as food studies, and then people who in other departments use food as some sort of object of interrogation, I think there sometimes is a clear demarcation of what counts and what doesn't. So... So I like to contrast this with your introduction and then your conclusion. I really loved your book. I want you to know oh, that. Thank you. And, and your conclusion, you you um, reminisce about being fascinated by Martha Stewart magazines in Toronto. Yeah. And and then in the last paragraph, you ended your monograph by declaring that you stopped paying attention to food journalism and you're tired of the cultural noise around it. Can you tease out these sentiments because I consider myself as a fellow. Scholar who works on food, but I'm not sure if I would count as a food studies person. And so, yeah. ha- has your sentiment changed because it's been, I mean, eight, nine years, right, since your racial indigestion was released? Yeah, thanks so
1: for reminding me. <laughs> no, I think it's a timeless book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, do you still feel that way despite the events of 2020 that food studies and food media continue to do what you? In the introduction, you call the commodification, fetishization of food. Do you see, yeah. do you see a like a, a push in that narrative or, or what do you see?
1: But let me tell you first. So the year of indigestion came out, I had a fellowship. In fact, at Harvard, I was at the Warren Center. We were doing a seminar on everyday life. And I wrote a chapter and I was like the last person to present my chapter. And I, you know, I, I gave it to them to read. And I was like, and by the way, I am never writing about food again. I am done right? And they read the chapter and they were like, so what about all the food? <laughs> and I was like, fuck, I, you know, I can't escape it as an object of interest. to mm-hmm. me. <laughs> I really thought I was not going to write a book uh, that touched on food and food studies, but I have. My second book is that when I say I'm tired of food, and by the way, let me say that my mom owns a restaurant. My mother has a restaurant and she lives in the Caribbean in a little town called Cabaretti in the Caribbean. And she feels the same way. And when I say that I'm tired about food, what I'm really tired of is um, there's so much noise between me or one's taste buds and consuming that I don't even feel like I can see the objects anymore. There's a proliferation of information. There's a proliferation of performance. There's a proliferation of knowledge. There's all sorts of niche food identities. And so when people are talking about food to me, and you know how it is when I was a graduate student, like as a fellow scholar, that you, when people say, oh, you're a graduate student or a scholar, what do you work on? You work on food. You know what I love? And then they start telling you their food, food bio. Yes. And having taken apart food as a as a cultural object for a very long time, I cannot hear what people are interested in without hearing about like 30 other narratives at the same time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So food is just very exhausting to me. Now, when I hear people talking about the food that they enjoy, I just hear about 30 other discourses of class performance and class anxiety and feeling and exhaustion around labor. I, I really wonder about how simple eating can be now. I want to get it down to its very basics. If there's a thing I really cannot abide, it's an elaborate restaurant meal. I don't want to read a menu with the provenance of everything. I don't want the elaborate aesthetics of the restaurant. I just want to eat a good thing. It's a funny thing. I feel overburdened by all of the meaning around food. And it's um. It's, I guess it's just turned into work. I mean, I guess that's the thing with becoming academics. I mean, really, we're just professionalized fans, but then we turn our fandom into our work and then we're just not fans anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't like how much cultural work food is made to do when really it should be about like enough for everyone, enough food for everyone and enough pleasure for everyone, but not an elaboration of like radically unequal cultures. And that's what I hear in food culture anymore. And I just don't want to be proximate to it.
0: I wanted to ask about um, your last sentiment that you didn't want to talk about the inequalities of culture. Is that, can you? I I mean, partly this is like what it means
1: to have grown up fairly working class and now have like transcended classes and become a, a middle class, fairly securely middle class, maybe a little bit more than middle class academic the pretensions of a very fancy food culture are not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I hope to die with as little little wine or coffee knowledge as uh-huh. possible. It, it's not about actually eating. It's about like not stopping to talk. It's about having your mouth full, so full of words of, about food that you actually never taste anything. Mm-hmm. And it feels dishonest to me because I think talking about food is a real pleasure for people. Mm-hmm. Um, But I find it very class-based. I I like to tease this out
0: a bit more because...
1: Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong too, by the way.
0: I don't know. I think there's something to be said about um, our comparative analyses on a cultural standpoint. So what does it mean for someone who wants to use words like decolonize or um, politically re-envision food systems? And how are we making those normative assumptions about what is right when maybe our standpoint is very much, even when we want to say we can't, we can't base everything on Western assumptions, but but I think translating these ideals into a different cultural context requires more than just radical rethinking. And I'm not sure how to get there. Even when we, hey. m- when we make promises of transparency. Say I- more, Harrison, what do you mean? Yeah. Say more. Oh so I'm probably um a stranger in my own academic institutions. I don't like a lot of comparative analysis from like United States or like my mom's birth country of Vietnam because I think I think it's very easy to make simplified assumptions about what could change or what you could borrow a cultural exchange from each other when it's not that easy. It's actually more chaotic to talk about democracy and what does that even entail and 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 how would that work? And then this whole binary of nation-state and nation, I don't know what it means to to have a nation-state that respects multiple identities. I'm reading Shiv Vishenathan right now and he has a really pessimistic view of the current state of India. But he also... Says what everyone else is saying, that we have to rethink and redefine these language terms that we hold dearly, like democracy, science. Yeah. Um, but how much more redefining can we get before we just kind of lose steam and start all over again? So I think what I'm hearing from both of us is like this uncertainty of when does change actually happen? And do we agree on this model of change? I, yeah,
1: I think that's right. Even to, like, to simplify things further, it's it's like the Bordervian sense of distinction. Yeah. I am uneasy with hierarchical <sighs> distinction. I don't like it, although I, I would just to say I'm not innocent of it at all. I really am aesthetically a big-ass snob, so I'm, like, in no way innocent of this. And well, the thing that I got very tired of in, in food and food studies was the increasing elaboration and distinction of what is good against what isn't. Yeah. And I just don't enjoy that. I want there to be enough of food I, enough of things that are good enough for everybody. And I don't need to have the stuff at the height of the food experience. I don't need it. It doesn't make me feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe where we're, we're
0: connecting on this. Yeah. I think it's very tricky because um, you know, <laughs> There are plenty of people doing good work about this, but I'm not sure if it's, can you go beyond transparency and talking about the ethnographic observations of a different country and that they get it right? Well, I'm not sure what that means, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Oh, Yeah. yeah. I guess I just like food to be really cheap and not violent.
0: Yes. So I have this tendency, when I don't know someone's work, I read a lot of their work. After Racial Indigestion, I read your um, short essay On the Limits and Promise of New Materialist Philosophy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I think that it drew out your critique on the cumbersome term of new directions, approaches, interdisciplinary genres. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the tendency to romanticize object-warranted ontology as an answer to the more humanistic approaches in academia. So -hmm. you talk about the binary, human, non-human. And um, in your book review essay, Writing Against the Human and the Humanities, which I thought was very thought-provoking. Well, thank you. And you surveyed four books on feminist science studies, and um, you began with the essay with a very clear, astute statement that there's a decline of enrollment in the humanities. Yeah. And you observe that people who are new material scholars want to move beyond arrogant human exceptionalism in their studies. And your intervention that you already wrote, I think, in Racial Indigestion, is to prioritize minoritarian knowledge, which includes the material structures of our lives. So what are your thoughts on the the continued object studies in academic disciplines? And what are those limits, especially for someone who does critical textual reading analysis, which I also do. And I think you're one of the few that in contemporary books that I've read, who does a very clear, careful approach to how do you read a text and what do the texts mean?
1: There's a lot in that question. Which one first? Uh, So do you see a contradiction then between close reading, which is, I don't know that I'm married to close reading in the traditional literary sense, but at least like a close attentiveness or like the performance studies um, scholar Alex Vasquez calls it listening in detail. Mm -hmm. You're interested in my response to the object-oriented turn and the new materialism post-humanist thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Or at least what's this continue binary? Even if we no longer want to live in a world of binaries, why why do object studies people focus on the human exceptionalism versus object oriented agency or yeah. um, humanities versus yeah. science studies?
1: There's some really cool young scholars doing work. Obviously yourself amongst them, Chrissy Spackman, Rachel Vaughn working in waste studies. So I think there's people doing kind of interesting materialist-based food studies work. I hope my book, which I hope will get off my desk soon, does some of that work as well. You know, those two pieces do a lot of work and they do a little bit of different work. I'm not interested in object-oriented ontology because the non-correlationist position, which is to say... Oh, you know, objects can't be known and we're we're always only human trapped trapped in the the prison of, of language and ideology and we never really can. And so like the thing about objects is that they cannot fully be known in and of themselves, you know, which is a drastic oversimplification of the non-correlationist position. I just find it like passively melancholy and leading to no good questions because like then what? You know, I'm just gonna sad and crying to my beer, you know, like, where do I go from that? The object-oriented ontologists who are, you know, largely dudes, but not only, but it's a very dude philosophy, you know, are really not listening to the work that feminist philosophy, but also very, very specifically indigenous and African-American and Black critical thinkers and are doing around the histories of objects and objecthood. Also, you know, work like Mel Chan, working in disability studies. So, you know, people that are paying attention to the histories of objecthood, to the history of materiality, to life worlds occluded by settler colonialism and by empire that had a richer, more imaginative, more sustainable relation to the non-human world. So the heroic narrative, Mr. and Mr. Whatever at the pub, you know, crying into their Guinness about how they, you know, they can't ever reach the material world. is just a romance that doesn't interest me because it ignores enormous swaths of thoughts. I wrote that piece, but you know, Kim Talbert's written about mm-hmm. that. Leah Jackson's written about that. Mel Chen, of course, has written about that. Dana Luciano does great work on this. I was interested in that piece to say, let's stop the romance of objecthood as an answer to, you know, the ills of humanism and think about what has already been said. And that second piece about the crisis in the humanities, when we take up a future of humanistic thinking and we don't take up the problem of the human itself as an ethical crisis, and existential crisis. Can I swear on your podcast? What's the fucking point? Like <laughs> we have 12 years left to stop fucking species suicide and this bemoaning the end of the humanity or the crisis in the humanities without taking account of the fact that the very category of the human has enabled such total violence against our planet and against other peoples that are not, you know, white and Western. I don't feel that their crisis in the humanities is my crisis in the humanities. Yeah. My mm-hmm. crisis in the humanities is a different crisis. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in displacing the human, not displacing, um, in decentering a naturalized relation to the human. In my work as much as possible Mm -hmm. with the understanding that being human, I'm probably going to fail at the total success of that project, but I'm still going to try as an ethical imperative. That's sort of the trajectory Of that work. You know, I came out of English literature. I think you did too, right? Mm -hmm. I came out of English literature as a child of immigrants and as the first woman in in both sides of my family to finish university. Mm -hmm. I was really in love with the beautiful social capital I thought that having an English degree gave me. And then I went to graduate school and tried to live inside of the structures built by that social capital and found them to be violent and unethical and um, straight up stupid when it came to their own survival. So I really have a kind of vexed relation to uh, humanities and humanism, Mm -hmm. even as I am exactly a product of it. And I don't wanna lie to myself about that. So yeah, it's a vexed and imperfect place to write from. A second book is much harder than a first book because it's a thing you don't want to hear when you haven't finished your first book, but the second book <laughs> is a whole other beast. Yeah. And um, just trying to unseat myself from my own comfortable relation to method as I inherited it as a scholar of literary studies has you know taken a while.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm not sure I've succeeded.
0: Yeah. Um, so my podcast um I'm really interested in the concept of what does it mean to read carefully what does it mean to cite carefully and how do we ensure that we're actually understanding the author and the text and you know when people ask me what my method is I said well reading and I know it sounds really simplistic but I try to tell them like I try to situate the text in accordance to the year it was published and the historical settings and and then what does it mean when we cite a text, when we remove that kind of historical context in which it exists, because that text becomes an artifact. And, and what I see now many times, um, sloppy citations, It's another question of, well, could I be an expert on that text or what it, uh, the citational text? So was my second podcast with Dr. Ashley Barnwell. I asked her, were you taught in grad school how to read carefully? And we both concluded that we probably did have a class on like, how do you synthesize horizontally rather than vertically? So these are questions that I want to keep in mind when I go back to teaching and, and trying to elaborate on what does it mean to be a critical reader and consumer of text? And so that's why I ask you these questions, because um, I, I find that your papers um, all deal with this ideas of the limits of possibilities and how and the recognition of them and then how we could move forward by being careful with our own methodological assumptions and practices.
1: Yeah. So a friend of mine told me that I write, I tend to write at the limits of the bearable and I think that was really great. <laughs> that's, I love that. But yeah. And I think that's really right. The limit of the bearable is a very happy place for me and I'm sure it has its own limitations as well. I'm very interested in, in listening closely the text and you know I was taught close reading. I don't remember exactly when it was in graduate school. You know, racial indigestion started as my BA thesis on Martha Stewart, but it really started when I was taking a class on the 1840s uh, at Stanford. And I got feedback on my paper on, you know, the kitchen scene in Uncle Tom's cabin that ends up anchoring my third chapter in my book. And the professor was like, you're not even paying attention to the language in the book. And when I went back and started rewriting, I really slowed it down. And I have a real love of close reading. I really do. I find it deeply instructive. I just don't find it to be adequate for, you know, the history of close reading um, in relation to the technologies of humanistic analysis that came afterwards is fairly politically regressive. I mean, it simply is not enough to imagine the text as adequate
0: yeah. on its
1: own, particularly when it's wedded to a refusal to talk about anything else but the text. Yeah, I agree. That's actually a deeply regressive, violent, and frankly, straight up racist approach to literature and to text and to art. Mm -hmm. I have this ambivalent relation to close reading where I find it to be like a good place to start, but never enough. And when people tell me that close reading is enough, I generally know that I don't trust them. (laughs) It's
0: like Amy Coney um, Barrett saying that she's a textualist, right? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Just be quiet, lady. Stop talking. We already know who you are.
0: I wanted to ask you about your own citational practices. Obviously, Mm -hmm. in racial indigestion, you use a a lot of some food studies, but I think there was more of a sociological, textual citation. So I want to ask about who claims your work. Are you part of the food studies community? Because you've published a lot in gender studies. I was looking through your website, and that's where I got your articles. It's a lot of literary pieces and then um, gender and women's studies. Nobody claims me. I'm lonely. I will I will read and cite anything.
1: Mm-hmm. And I read a lot. So this is something I'm working through in my second book, which now has a new title. I'm now thinking of calling it Deviant Matter, but I'm not sure if that's the final title. I'm interested in following objects through their or affects or aesthetics or things or ideas across time. And as it turned out, Things and matter and objects and feelings and aesthetics and and affects and even texts have much more interesting and promiscuous lives than our disciplinary backgrounds allow us to really say out loud. And so I don't know. I don't really know where I actually belong. I think it's a kind of actually professional problem for me. I like to go to the crossroads. whatever the crossroads is, that's probably where I'm going to plant my flag and find an idea or a thing that interests me. So, for instance, I have a chapter in my book on gelatinousness, and I start with a short story by Herman Melville from um, 1859, and I end with pornography from the early 21st century, a, a screensaver. And I'm interested in the idea of gelatinousness, but on the way there, I go through non-Newtonian physics, I pick up on some curl, on some Marxist theory, I think about metabolism, I think about fats and resistance and bounciness and sonic waves and... um, I I don't know. I don't think I'm very good at disciplinarity. I'm not a very good subordinate and I'm not really interested in the questions that disciplinarity keeps telling me to ask. Mm -hmm. Those are sort of like fictions of, um, the fictions of value that don't interest me. So for instance, I have two degrees in English, my BA and my MA are in English and I love literature But the major questions of literature, literary studies, such as period, genre, author, or method, always seem to me to be about buying back into and feeding back into the value of literary studies itself. But actually, why should I not write about a novel of Virginia Woolf next to a recipe a movie, and some architecture. Nobody ever told Virginia Woolf not to go to the movies or not to walk down the street. So why should I limit myself Mm -hmm. when actually the objects in the world are far more promiscuous, they travel more, they touch more things uh, than our disciplines really allow us to talk about? So like my citational practice is I will read anything. Mm -hmm. It touches on my object and i had find it has an idea that i can use i'll take it but i do think that um it has made me very hard
0: to place yeah and even with this in vogue term of saying interdisciplinarity i think like what you were gesturing to is like even when we say interdisciplinary the disciplinary homes will want to Have some sort of classification for your work and for your position in the department.
1: Yeah. And I think especially in a period of false university austerity like this one, you know, where there's a kind of uh, a retrenchment, there's no jobs, people aren't hiring, there's not enough money, blah, blah, blah. All of those are fictions. They're, I mean, it's true they're not hiring. That's, that's awful. And it's true there's a massive adjunctification of our, our workforce, but there is enough money. If they wanted to hire all the people they wanted to hire, they would do it. They don't want to. But in this language of false austerity, there's a kind of clamping down on the disciplines. Well, if we're only going to hire one person, we can't hire an Asian Americanist or a Native Americanist. We'd better hire someone who does Shakespeare. That kind of retrenchment you know, it's a moment of doubling down on disciplinarity in the face of a fiction of austerity. I don't think it produces good questions. And I also don't think that disciplinarity really allows us to look at our objects in their actual historical lives.
0: Mm-hmm. So we were talking a little bit about your second book. Enrichment and Digestion, you, you paired a lot of visual aids with the text that you examine. Because I'm in STS, I see I people do a lot of Analysis on multiple objects at once, and yeah, how do you deal with this notion of interpretive flexibility that could be employed when you're dealing with text or visual aids or films? Um, and are there limits to how you want to interpret whatever media you're using? There was one talk that I went to it, and I didn't really agree with the assessment of yeah. the the science fiction film that was being assessed. but, yeah. but I never know. How does one argue for those authorial perspectives or differences? I I mean, I think you're asking about moving interpretively across multiple
1: media. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just do it. That's all. And this is like, again, this might go perhaps to my disambivalence or perhaps a contradiction within my own relation to interdisciplinarity. I think good interdisciplinarity is simultaneously deeply promiscuous. So I talk a lot in the new book about an idea of promiscuous method, but it's also about a kind of a deep disciplinarity, you know, Um, which is to say I'm interested in what people that, who have spent their lives talking about film have to say about talking about film. Like I want to talk to them. I want to listen to them and I want to know what they're doing because they have things that are valuable to say. Obviously. So I think as I travel across media, I'm trying to listen to people in the very deep insides of disciplines. And then I try to depart from the deep insides of disciplines and put things next to each other. My own PhD training was an interdisciplinary program. I did history, I did literature, I did film, and I did critical theory. I did those are my four fields in my qualms. so I'm pretty well-versed, or was it one time, it well-versed on the insides of those practices. I don't think that there's a flat ontology, say, between uh, a short story and a silent film, even though perhaps both were produced in 1906. But I also don't think that the fact that there isn't a flat ontology between the two of them should stop me from trying very hard to read each of them very, very well. Mm-hmm. I think the thing about being interdisciplinary is that in general, and I think we can take this lesson from the way in which interdisciplinary is often a code word for not being white, Mm -hmm. is that to be very good at being interdisciplinary, you have to be twice as good as the people that are strictly disciplinary. It's just more work. So for instance, would it be possible, and there are people who write very good five-chapter books. And there's a single text in every book and they have wonderful ideas and they're wonderful books. That's not the kind of work I, that interests me. Excuse me, I'm interested in putting multiple kinds of media next to each other and thinking about how a singular phenomenon travels across them, whether it's this, this idea of like say, gelatinousness that I'm like working with right now, what happens with gelatinousness in a short story by Melville, what happens with gelatinousness in a video uh, by Bompas and Parr. What happens with gelatinous in physics and how is physics talking about it? What happens with gelatinousness when we're talking about the bioreological physics of the fat on your butt in pornography? Those are four, four or five very different ways of talking. And yet there's a similar thing in each of them. So it seems to me that it should be possible to follow a thing as it in the case of gelatinous to like exhaust the metaphor as it like bounces across each of them. But it does take care.
0: You know, does that help? Yes, yes. Yeah. Even though I say my, my main form of critique oh. is text, I don't limit text just to books and short stories. So Keila, we've talked about your new book proposal. Can you tell me what's the topic of investigation? How, how it came into being and why you decided to write it as a follow-up yeah. to racial indigestion?
1: Sure. So, you know, racial indigestion, like I said, it's a book in which I took the photo negative of like the scene of food studies, the scene of the investigation of the object in food studies. Instead of looking at the object, I wanted to look at everything around it. And this would be like a double photo negative where, like, I'm actually interested in kind of getting inside the food object itself and thinking less about. Again, less about food, although there's a kind of food history and there's, de- there's an STS element to it. And there's also a kind of history of science element to it. So for instance, I'm interested in the history of fermentation and germ theory and the mechanist versus vitalist debate, you know, arrives in the United States and how it gets here. And then also how, you know, in, in relation to like Heather Craftsman's work, right? Like how we entered a microbiopolitical age. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very interesting story to me. I'm also interested in thinking about what that means for us as scholars of the history of materiality, as as critical theorists, the kind of history of race and materiality, and then very specifically about the intersection between matter. Aesthetics and affect itself. So, fermentation is an object of like intense anxiety in the 19th century because nobody knows what the relation is between ferment and decomposition. Nobody can, right? Pasteur is trying to figure out ways to manage fermentation. And then the, mm-hmm. the sort of microbiology rise in the United States, and people were like, how are we going to figure out what's rotten food, what's good food, what's pure food, what's bad food and so on. So there's this moment of the massive reorganization of molecular life Mm -hmm. in in the U S and it takes place at the time of this massive reorganization of the relation between the federal government and state governments after the failure of reconstruction, it takes place at the moment of the rise of progressivism and it's kind of um, the the very early rumblings of New Deal leftist progressivism. And I'm interested in what kind of claims a look at that moment allow us to make about the life of matter as a kind of aesthetic and affective issue across the 20th century. So when did intoxication become a racialized formation? Where in the overlap between fermentation theory and germ theory um, was the idea? Did the kind of figure of ferment or of foment as a kind of political problem or as a figure of the crowd or of the masses in need of hygienic management come into either come into play or be reworked and reformed through biological languages? So it's about food, but it's also really about, you know the matter that we just happen to call food and where it's kind of cultural history fits into larger stories about feeling about what is phenomenologically available to us, Mm -hmm. where the state comes in in managing our phenomenological and affective and aesthetic lives. Mm -hmm. When did rationality and sobriety become the central and privileged form of personal comportment and individual disciplinarity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as in relation to kind of the long history of everyday drunkenness that we know existed before the end of the 19th century I'm interested in those kinds of questions so it's a kind of molecular history of healing yeah I hope it yeah, gets I don't really, really soon. I can't really figure it out either
0: no, no, no. <laughs> I use neurogastronomy. That, yeah that book so I'm I don't quite like it but It'll be interesting to read that with neurogastronomy gastronomy and something that it's going to be in my final chapter of the dissertation. So hopefully your book will come out by the time that I'm trying to write my dissertation. Those are the questions that I think are very intriguing and I don't think I've seen that in one entry point just yet. Like there are bits and pieces from different scholars, but I think the thread makes narrative sense to me
1: really yeah my god because it's really hard to write
0: it's
1: (laughs) it's been really hard to write I'm having a really hard time I mean first of all of course like I thought I'd be finished the book by now but then the pandemic speaking of like infection and germ theory and, you know, just institutional life once you sort of get to mid-career and have to do all sorts of other kinds of work. When I said at the end of the first book that I was tired of writing about food, I think part of that was true. Like I was also just tired because you're tired when you finish your first book. But also I'm overburdened by the meaning around this object, which should really be simple and, and plentiful and, and available but also that I was really hoping to unseat myself in my next book. I think you finish your project, your first book, and you're like, oh, I know exactly the second book I could put out in four years. Mm. And I decided I would make my life harder because why did I do that to myself? I don't know why I did that. (laughs) Spectacular mistake. Mm -hmm. It's been really hard to find ways to like speak all of those things at the same time. But I don't know. Uh, My editor tells me that's why it's worth writing difficult books. We'll see. Maybe it will be a spectacular failure, but here's the thing. It's like, you know, the thing that the sciences do really well, that those of us who are like humanities adjacent or humanities do well is they recuperate failure. So actually failure is a perfectly reasonable outcome of a research, you know, endeavor. Maybe it will fail.
0: that would be fine. Right. And I always think that everyone's essentially rewriting the same questions in different oh. case studies and citations and stuff like that. So it's really
1: true. It sucks. I had to go back to Mints actually. I went back to sweetness and power because I find like over and over I can return to it. And I wrote this thing on American Quarterly, just like really trying to think about what's going on in Mints that he doesn't really have the language to quite completely articulate about energy and feeling and flavor and the organization of the senses. It's an incredibly rich book. Like it never stops paying off that book. Mm -hmm. So that's really what I'm trying to get to is a kind of a history of the ordering of the senses, which is also a kind of, you know, a history or like a case study in what it would mean to speculate about how aesthetics... Actually transcends the scale. The ordering of aesthetics transcends the scale from the level of the molecular all the way up to the state.
0: But it might fail. No, I I like that. <laughs> it might really it's the fail. molecular to the state. I think I just like questions of what governance means. I guess you in racial indigestion you're talking about the political site of the body and and the technology yeah. of eating. So I find that language very refreshing to me to read.
1: Ultimately, it's really biopolitics. I mean, ultimately, you know, we're all just children of Foucault. Oh,
0: especially in light of recent events. Yes, absolutely. So, well, Keila, that's um, all the questions I have for you officially.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's super exciting to start talking to you and also, like, really to begin a long dialogue with you.
0: Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at ananadroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Barons for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner Matthew Sample for his music and edits. See you next time.